Welcome to the Humanity Matters Podcast, where we discuss and reflect on faith and philosophy, nonprofit leadership, and social issues. We want to engage ideas on what it means to be a free human being in the pursuit of human flourishing. For more information, visit our website, philipfletcher.org. And now, the Humanity Matters Podcast. host Philip Fletcher where we discuss faith and philosophy, nonprofit leadership and social issues. We want to engage with ideas on what it means to flourish as a human being. Thank you uh, for joining me tonight whether it's live on Facebook and YouTube or you're gonna catch this at a later time as well as over at uh, the Humanity Matters podcast. So if you have not subscribed to the Humanity Matters podcast, Uh, You can find it at anchor.fm or wherever you get your podcast content. And hey, please leave a review. It would be very helpful to me. As always, you can connect with me on my website, philipfletcher.org. That is philipfletcher.org. Go over to YouTube. YouTube, right? A lot of videos. A lot of great content, short videos, lectures, teaching type things. If you want to get to know more about me, how I arrive at a lot of what I talk about, a lot of the foundational things, just go over to YouTube. Just put in Philip D. Fletcher, put in Humanity Matters and subscribe. I would like that very much. Hey, if you want to be a sponsor, hey, want to run an ad, 30 seconds worth, you want to do something for a whole month whatever it may be. Hey, hit me up. Send a sponsorship at any amount to PayPal, pfletcher73.com, pfletcher73 at gmail.com. And then finally, if you want to be part of the mailbag, get part of the mailbag, get a cool Hey, email the Humanity Matters Podcast at gmail.com, Humanity Matters Podcast at gmail.com. And so getting through the first week of March, a lot of great things, interesting things going on, a lot of great things coming up as far as interviews next Sunday, 5 p.m. Central Standard Time, Spike Cohen will be joining me live for a Q&A and discussion about the ABCs of libertarianism, his lessons learned about running as the uh, libertarian vice presidential candidate for the United States of America. And so why don't you join us? 5 p.m. We'll be taking your questions, things you want to know about uh, politics, running for office. Maybe there's something you don't know about uh, the Libertarian Party. Be part of that. Hey, we'll have Democrats coming. We'll be having Republicans coming, trying to get some socialists, you know, types as well, trying to bring together all these different ideas so that you can be uh, better informed. Then on (coughs) Sunday, March 21st, let me bring that up here, uh, Dr. Peg Falls Corbett will be joining us as we have a discussion on punishment and the criminal justice system. We're going to talk about criminal justice reforms. We're going to talk about death penalty views about that. And so join us on 
uh, Sunday, March 21st at 5 p.m. as well for our Humanity Matters one-on-one discussions. So quote of the week comes from John Stuart Mill and his book on liberty. If you haven't read it, I would greatly encourage you to read it. Uh, His thought was very influential in the development of what we would call liberalism, not liberalism as we would know it today, progressive or what is commonly associated with uh, those who uh, affirm a democratic platform in terms of political party, but liberalism, freedom of speech, right? Freedom of religion, the opportunity to have freedom of ideas. And John Stuart Mill said this, and I quote, coming from his book on liberty, the only way in which a human being can make some approach to knowing the whole of a subject is by hearing what can be said about it by persons of every variety of opinion and studying all modes in which it can be looked by every character of mind. Let me say that again. John Stuart Mill from his book on liberty. The only way in which a human being can make some approach to knowing the whole of a subject is by hearing what can be said about it by persons of every variety of opinions and studying all modes in which it can be looked by every character of mine. And that comes from John Stuart Mill from his book on liberty. And we're going to talk more about that uh, later. And so, again, if you would like to participate in the mailbag or, hey, you got a comment, you can put it up today if you're following on Facebook or YouTube. I love to interact with you as well. But if you've got a question and you want to participate in the mailbag, I'll read your question, send you a, a gift. You can uh, email me, humanitymatterspodcast at gmail.com, humanitymatterspodcast at gmail.com. And so the mailbag today, we've got two uh, great questions. And the first comes from Anthony. And he asks, I know you're really big into comic books. What do you think about the possibility of a black Superman coming to the big screen? Yes, black Superman possibility coming to the big screen. So if you look behind me, right, I like superhero stuff, right? I got Marvel comic books, all right? I've got Star Wars collectibles. Um, If you were to see the rest of my office, Uh, A lot of great things. I collect comic books, been collecting comic books since, oh man, the seventh grade, maybe. It's been a long time. And I treat them now as a investment. And, you know, I go through this whole process. Typically my days off are on Friday. And so I go to the comic book store here in Conway, Arkansas. And I'll take about an hour and a half, two hours, sit and just put in some work looking at comic books, looking at their potential value buying some that I may feel, you know, that could increase in value. You know, there's a lot of different variables, you know, now superheroes and movies and TV shows are kind of contributing to the increased value of uh, comic books. But it was announced recently that J.J. Uh, Abrams was going to be picking up Superman, is going to be uh, producing a movie and that Ta-Nehisi Coates would be Uh, writing. And so that has created this thought that there's going to be a black Superman. Now, if you're not familiar, uh, obviously Superman developed by 
Simon is uh, Simon is Schuster. Uh, Action Comics number one. If you've ever seen that, uh, you've got Superman holding up the green cards on the yellow cover. A whole lot of money it's worth, right? But that was the introduction of Superman in Action Comics. Batman came out of Detective Comics from the DC universe, right? So we're not talking about Marvel. We're talking about DC. Marvel is Captain America. See that? You know, Iron Man. If you've seen any of the Marvel movies, that's Marvel. Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, they come out of uh, the DC universe. So J.J. Abrams is going to be producing the next one. It was being done by Zack Snyder. He did Man of Steel and Batman v. Superman and the whole Justice League Snyder cut that's about to come out on HBO Max. Um, But J.J. Abrams is picking it up. Now, if you're not familiar with J.J. Abrams, he did uh, um, Star Trek recently. Uh, he's very famous for the lens flare type thing. He also did uh, The Force Awakens with Star Wars, as well as Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker, you know, whatever you think about those. And so now he's going to be cooking up Superman and Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know. Uh, you know, Ta-Nehisi, he is familiar with some books. He's given some testimony on reparations and things. He's got a particular view of life. I, I feel as if he falls in what would be that critical race theory um, world in regards to critiquing American society um, from a perspective, seeking to understand power dynamics as relationship to race. And so uh, he's picking that up. Now, Ta-Nehisi Coates, he recently did a stint writing a Black Panther uh, series. And then he also uh, wrote a series uh, for Captain America. Both of those series they're all right. You know, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates is not, he's all right storyteller regarding superheroes. But nonetheless, it got me thinking like a black Superman, right? Now in the DC world or even in the Marvel world, there is these things called the multiverse, right? Um, in DC, if you followed the CW with the flat, the Arrowverse, right? The Flash, Supergirl that comes on, uh, Superman and Lois, which was recently reduced. I know this is kind of nerdy right now, but I'm answering uh, Anthony's question. Um, There is this concept that there are multiple Earths, right? And there's multiple, there's different iterations of these comic books, right? So in Marvel, you've got Earth 616. That's like the main the main characters, the traditional characters. In DC, you've got what is Earth Prime, okay? Now, in a different Earth, there is a black Superman, Valzai, okay? And he is president of the United States in this explanation of Superman, um, but he's also Superman as well. This is a black Superman. So there's thoughts that Michael B. Jordan, uh, he had approached WB about the possibility of producing a a black Superman. Now, we don't know whether this black Superman was going to be Clark Kent, who's going to be black, or it could be the Val Zod character, or could it be somebody else, right? Needless to say, you know, it's got me thinking, like, why do we need a black Superman? Black Panther with T'Challa and what Chadwick Boseman and his interpretation of Black Panther, it demonstrated that we could have a original superhero, right? Who happened to be of this particular ethnicity, right? And 
with a good story, right, could really bring in a host of different people, right? Now, there are other in comic book world, whether DC or Marvel or any other type of uh, comic book companies that are out there, there are original black superheroes, not heroes that are reimagined, right? But original heroes. So if you're familiar with the with the Falcon, Sam Wilson, he is an original black superhero. Again, Black Panther. You know, here's some um, some other ones for your consideration. There's Static Shock. My son grew up watching uh, Static Shock. Uh, there is uh, Black Lightning. He's currently on the CW. This is the last season of it. But Black Lightning, he's another original black superhero. Now you've got, as well, John Stewart. Now, Green Lantern Corps, right? You can imagine a universal police body, right? So you've got different Green Lanterns, right? So the you've got the Hal Jordan Green Lantern. He's one of the founding members of the Justice League. But then you also got a, a Guy Gardner. He's right, white. Uh, but then came along John Stewart. Now, if you're familiar with John Stewart, if you watched uh, the Justice League or Justice League animated uh, series uh, back in the day, that's the Green Lantern you may be familiar with. If you're watching the DC animated universe, you're more familiar with the Hal Jordan uh, Green Lantern. But needless to say, there could be a great story. Static Shock or Black Lightning, John Stewart or Storm. People are familiar with Storm. X-Men series, uh, Halle Berry played her. So I'm saying that to say, why not produce one of these superheroes on the big screen? Hey, Blade, Wesley Snipes. He made a popular series back in the day. The Vampire Hunter, the Daywalker is what they called him. So we have a body of work, a body of literature. There's a whole ton of source material out there where we don't need to tokenize, if you will, just take an existing character and make just make him black, right? Superman or Wonder Woman or, you know, Steve Rogers or Tony Stark or any of the other ones. We've got a body of a wealth of comic book material. Again, you can make an amazing, with the right story, Static Shock movie. With the right story and actor and, and all that kind of stuff, you can make an amazing Black Lightning movie or a John Stewart Green Lantern movie or a Storm movie. And so those are my thoughts about this Black Superman, right? I would rather see you leave Clark Kent alone, <laughs> Clark Kent. Kryptonian, skin color is white, landed in Kansas. It is what it is. Make a great movie about Black Lightning or Jon Stewart. Again, Black Panther demonstrated overwhelmingly that the world with a great story would flock to go see that type of movie. Marvel made Blade three Movies. The first one was amazing. Second and third one was like, oh, okay, right. But again, that that material is out there. There's no need to, um, I don't know, make it seem as if we cannot have um, a black superhero who has his or her own original 
story, that the only way that it can be legitimized is if we um, put a superhero in blackface, for lack of a better term. So those are my thoughts on that, Anthony. Thank you for the question to the mailbag. Now, second question. All right. Coming from Derek. All right. My son is having a real difficult time figuring out what his next steps are after high school. He does not want to attend college immediately. And my wife and I are divided on the issue. I want him to go to school, but she learns, she leans more his direction. What advice do you have for us from Anthony? Wow. So great question. You know, I grew up in a period and I'm 48 years old. And so, you know, if you're around my age, we grew up in a period where, you know, go to college, you go to college, you'll be successful. You get a, a great job and all that good stuff, right? Now we're at a period in our society where going to college does not have to be the route for a number of reasons. One, um, there are just some individuals who learn best by just simply working in the context of what would be called a apprenticeship or an internship, right? And so they're more experiential, hands-on learning. For them, him or her sitting in a classroom for X amount of hours, watching someone talk at them, you know, there may be some interaction. That's just not their thing. They've gone through it through elementary school, through middle school, junior high, high school, and now, you know, graduation is upon them, you know, for them to learn is out in the world. There are others in which structure, um, that type of organization, uh, that type of um, teaching where, you know, a lot of times it's in a lecture format, they, they thrive in that situation. And so for them to move on to a college setting, right, it may be their thing, all right? The other thing we've got to think about is this, is that uh, the expense of going to a four-year university or college, right? Now, all the talk about student loans and debt forgiveness and the increasing cost of colleges in university, it should give an individual pause as to whether or not um, they want to pursue that route and the uh, financial debt that they may incur. And so, you know, one of the things that needs to be asked, and Derek, you know, I'm talking to any parent uh, who has, you know, kids in the junior high, high school level. Um, but, you know, those are things to think about. Is what your child, is it what he or she wants to do? Does it necessitate them paying money to learn? Or could they go out and actually work and learn and actually receive money? Right. So there's there's trade offs in that. So obviously, if, um, you know, if you have a child that wants to be a doctor or a lawyer, got it. There's going to be some education that's got to be involved and all that kind of stuff. If you have someone that just wants to be a writer. Right. Who wants to be, you know, produce videos or photography, some type of creative thing. They may not need to go to a four year university, maybe a two year and just you know, go about their business, or maybe they want to um, learn a different way. I have a friend here in Conway, Jessica Crum, 
and they started a, a learning institute. The name skips my mind right now for for creatives. Right. And so uh, that's another option for uh, students who don't want to go the traditional route of of learning. Um, that's something to consider. Uh, the other thing I would say this um, to parents who see this differently. Right. Um Ultimately, you want to support your child in what they're doing, right? Because they are the one, he or she is the one that's going to have to to bear the weight and the weight in terms of the work, um, the responsibility, and even um, some of the financial costs associated with a traditional way of learning, traditional meaning the four-year college or university. At the same time, they're going to have to bear the weight of if they go a non-college route. So they want to become a plumber or a welder, or uh, instead they want to go into the military. Ultimately, they have to bear that weight. And it, in the long term, when a child is able to do and pursue those things that bring him or her meaning, all right, where they are discovering their their purpose, right? Um, With the acknowledgement that in either route, there's going to be some associated difficulty. What you can do as parents is, you know, you got to step back a little bit, but give them uh, the emotional support, right? The encouragement, ask them the questions, um, that will continue to stir independence, uh, consideration of different courses of actions, so that as they are growing into adulthood, they are able to make those decisions and they're able to live with those decisions. Okay, um, that is that that is kind of the role as a parent. You know, I dealt with that me and my uh, wife. Uh, Ourselves, our, our second child, um, she thrives in the work environment, right? She did some classes, uh, but she thrives because she wants to work. Our oldest and our youngest, both of them, our oldest finished college, our youngest, she's at college. They thrive in that situation. And so we want to honor and respect their uniqueness um, as individuals. We want to respect their decisions and be able to support them in as many ways as possible, but at the same time, uh, allow them the space to um, enjoy their successes, feel where they are struggling, okay? And see them move forward. Because the reality is, parents, you're not going to be there always. That's the reality, right? And so um, how can you support your child as they are growing into adulthood so that they are finding meaning in their work. They're discovering their purpose in their work. And along the way, they are being happy. They're being happy, right? And so that is a beautiful thing as a parent. It's difficult, right? Again, I grew up, college is for everybody, but it's not. College was for me, right? I love the college atmosphere from my bachelor's to my master's to my PhD. I love that type of atmosphere, right? Other people that I know, that's just not for them. 
And that should be honored. And in honoring that, we honor and affirm their human agency. Uh, we affirm uh, their personhood. And, and above all, uh, we affirm the dignity that's already residing in them. So a uh, great question, Anthony, on that. Hey, parenthood, I'll tell you, is difficult. It ain't sunshine and roses. It's it's times of, of you're on some highs and there's times you're on uh, some lows. There's times when you're just like, you know, you're celebrating your kid. And there's other times you're just sitting like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to make it through this? Right. Kids don't come with an instruction manual. They don't. So whatever it is that you have in your life that grounds you, uh, that guides you uh, morally and, and ethically, right? Whatever those principles are that have been um, placed in you by your parents, you know, you want to seek to pass those on into your children. Uh, and then in passing uh, those values and those principles on, you know, they're going to take those and apply them as it relates to their life. And that's the other thing we got to remember, parents, is our situation, right, is different than our children's situation. So the decisions that we made as persons at their age, whether they're 18, 19, 20, is wholly different than the decisions and the things they have to take into consideration today. And so it's important that we are sensitive to those things and again, we want to ultimately stand and applaud as our children are pursuing meaning, as they are discovering their purpose and their calling in life, and just be like, I see you. I see you. That's being a good father. That's being a good mother. All right. So I hope that helps. Hey, we got a comment. All right. All right. What's going on, Rick? What's going on, Rick? Hope you are doing well. This is uh, Philip Fletcher with the Humanity Matters Weekly. We have just been taking questions from the mailbag. If you want to participate in the mailbag, just send a question. All right. Humanity Matters Podcast at gmail.com. Humanity Matters Podcast at gmail.com. And now let's talk about minimum wage, right? So there is a lot of discussion going on about the minimum wage. A lot of discussion going on in Congress about raising the minimum wage to uh, $15 in an hour. Whoa, right? So that got me to thinking, right? Typically when we hear discussions about the minimum wage, we hear about how it's going to impact businesses and how it's going to impact everyday person that is working, okay? How it's going to impact businesses and how it's going to impact those who are working on a uh, daily basis, all right? And so what also got me to thinking is, where are those voices, all right? Those people who this is really going to directly impact, all right? It got me to thinking, a minimum wage increase for someone like an Amazon or a Walmart is back out here in Arkansas. Um, they have the opportunity. Now I know people there are making at least $15 an hour or more, right? They can absorb that cost. 
But when the majority of the businesses in the United States are small businesses, okay, you have to ask yourself, those small businesses, right? Not those mid-sized businesses. I'm not talking about the Amazons and the, and the Walmarts and the Teslas of the world, so on and so forth, right? And I'm talking about those businesses that have three employees, four employees, maybe five employees, right? They're not a franchise, all right? It's something that started as obviously an idea and that they wanted to provide a service to their community. And so it's just pretty local. Um, how would something like moving from like in Arkansas, it's uh, $11. Um, how would that impact them moving from $11 to $15, right? You know, is it, would it be gradual? Would it be an immediate thing? But what's also lacking in a discussion is how that impacts nonprofits. Now for full disclosure, I run a nonprofit city of hope outreach, right? I have, uh, employees. I have some people, I have people I pay as employees and I have some people that we pay some contract labor and stuff. Right. But it got me thinking, not thinking about like the goodwills and the salvation armies, right? These large nonprofits, um, who are national or in some cases international, right. Who could absorb the cost like Amazon or Walmart or a Tesla who could absorb the cost of raising the minimum wage, how would that impact nonprofits? So, you know, obviously did some research, right? And so in uh, the United States, this is based off of the a report by the charitable sector who reviewed uh, 990 reports. 990s are reports that nonprofits have to submit every year to maintain our status, okay? Uh, there are approximately 1.5, let's see, one point. 5 million nonprofits in the United States. All right. So Congress created uh, almost three dozen types of tax exempt organizations. All right. You know, you can find them in the tax code. So, you know, you got 501c3s, 501c4s, 501c5s, 501c3s, uh, 6s, so on and so forth. Right. So uh, some research was done by Salmon and Newhouse. Uh, who reported the following regarding nonprofits contributing to the economic and employer influence. Did you know that nonprofits, all right, employ over 12.3 million persons in the United States? That's significant, all right? Nonprofits are the third largest private employer behind retail trade, all right? So Targets, Old Navies, right? And accommodation and food service. So your chilies, your hotels, your Fridays, like nonprofits is number three. That's significant. 12% of all nonprofits jobs in the United States are in social assistance. So my nonprofit, City of Hope Outreach, we would fall under that. We provide social assistance in terms of education, housing, community development, so on and so forth. All right. But 12% of all nonprofits do that. This includes um, employment and individual and family services, community food services, housing services, vocational rehabs, even child daycare. Okay. So immediately I can think of some immediate nonprofits that I work with a day and weekly basis who fall in this category here in Conway. So Salmon and Newhouse, this is a study they did in 2019. 
Uh, they concluded, and I quote, the nonprofit sector is not only a significant employer, but also a significant contributor to employment growth, close quote. So critical to our discussion about, you know, the minimum wage is the income generated in relationship to nonprofit employment. So Newhouse and Salmon, they continue to say uh, that the total annual wages by nonprofits was $638 billion. Wow. This was second to manufacturing and professional services, right? Second, all right, to manufacturing and then professional services. That's, again, significant. All right, so in my state of Arkansas, all right, uh, Arkansas nonprofits create 9.2% of the national share of private employment. Okay. Again, third largest employer in the United States are nonprofits here in Arkansas. Arkansas, we make up 9.2% of that employment. All right. So minimum wage. So as a as a an employer, and that's what I am, right? Here's the commonality, whether you're a for-profit or profit. When I'm paying an employee, right? The things that I have to cover are workman's comp insurance. I have to cover unemployment insurance and pay payroll taxes, right? Now, as I increase hourly wages, right? Those way those liabilities go up as well, all right? So then the question becomes me as for me as a nonprofit, all right? Because I don't sell anything. So what distinguishes me from ABC Business, who sells widgets, is that ABC Business is selling widgets, right? Obviously, they're going to make a profit. And then they take, excuse me, they're going to take that money. They got to cover their expenses, all right? So expenses include labor. Expenses include manufacturing the widget, right? Expenses include keeping the lights on and any type of maintenance. All right. And everything after that, there's your profit. Right. Now, if I'm increasing my labor costs, everything associated with that one individual in terms of a minimum wage. Right. Then I am pulling. As ABC widget maker from the profits to cover that. Right. They can do that now as a nonprofit. Now I'm setting aside like a goodwill who sells things. Right. As a nonprofit, again, nonprofits in general do not sell things, right? So we have a client coming in looking for housing assistance. That individual who is coming in looking for housing assistance, he or she is not saying, hey, I got to pay $10 to come see Coho to get housing assistance. That's not how it is. Our revenue is dependent on generosity. What kind of generosity? Well, you got to fundraise, right? So you got to put on events, Facebook fundraisers. You know, you got to send out emails, cool little social media things. Um, hey, make a donation, you know, one time, monthly, quarterly, you know, or set up some type of annuity, something like that, an endowment, right? But all of that is based off of somebody's generosity. Another form of, uh, so that's uh, fundraising, all right? Another aspect of fundraising is that you got to write grants. Now, 
you can write grants to businesses, right? So businesses like a Home Depot, they've got foundations set up, all right? Or a Lowe's, okay? Or there's a, a family foundation that's out there. We have in Arkansas, the Arkansas Community Foundation, or you can write a grant to United Way. And so if you get approved, you know, that's some revenue, but that revenue is restricted based off of what right for and then you know that's in to say hey this is how we spent it all right or you could write and get a grant from the government but typically how government grants work is is that they are reimbursable right so you have to spend the money first and then you get the money back i'm saying all that to say this is that for nonprofits and i'm looking i'm thinking about those small nonprofits right similar to those small businesses who are the majority across the United States for those small small nonprofits, then they have to go through a decision-making process, right? And so the options that are available to them is, right, they got to increase their fundraising. But to do more fundraising, there's an associated cost to that, all right? A second option is they may have to reduce services, right? Or another possible option they have to consider is revamping how they're going to conduct their labor in relationship to those services. See, those services cannot happen without labor, right? So those that labor comes in this form in terms of nonprofits. I hope everybody's getting an education because um, I've talked to nonprofit leaders here in town and sometimes their pr frustration is um, grants and people are willing to... Uh, cover program costs, but they're not willing to cover the cost of uh, people actually doing the work to make the program or the services happen, right? So labor can come in the forms of employees, all right? Second, it could come in the term, uh, excuse me, in the form of uh, contract labor. So you go out, you get somebody, you contract with them to do a specific thing for a specific time, right? You can't tell them what to do or when to be there and all that kind of stuff. They're independent contractors. You can get interns here in Conway. We've got three great colleges, UCA, Central Baptist College, Hendricks College, right? Use interns. But the trade-off with interns is you only have them for a specific time. And um, it's tied to specific classwork, things they can and can't do. And so they may be there for a semester or for a year and things. And part of that is you have to retrain people, especially when you have a turnover with interns. And then finally, you have volunteers, right? Good, well-meaning people who just want to come in and do something. But the volunteer, right, they show up when they want. But if they don't show up, then you're kind of like, dang, how are we going to cover this service? The volunteers don't show up, then the service can't happen. So those are some, those are some of the options that are a that nonprofits have to consider because they are not selling like a for-profit, a good or a service. And whereas a for-profit can look at the market and respond accordingly, they may need to raise prices or lower prices, you know, increase production or reduce production. Nonprofits, people are having needs every day. Like, we know, we're coming out of this pandemic. 
People have housing needs, food needs, like those things don't stop. They just keep going and going and going. And dollars have to cover that. And in order for those housing needs or food needs or rehabilitative needs or childcare needs to um, actually occur, it requires actual people to conduct those services. And then the other thing that you have to consider is this, is that some nonprofits can get away with a complete volunteer uh, workforce, all right? But then there are other nonprofits that are going to require actual people, employees, who are going to have to make that stuff happen, right? To oversee the infrastructure, execute the policies and procedures, do those necessary things so that those services can be provided. So in that case, I'm thinking about transitional shelters or um, emergency shelters or child care services or rehabilitative services. So you're going to need actual people employed because there are other associated things with those services that, you know, it's going to require a whole lot of uh, protection because there's an increased liability. There's an increased liability when you're watching somebody's kids. There's an increased liability when you have a house and you're watching over people, right? And everything associated with that. And so um, some things that you consider in regards to um, just the minimum wage, I would encourage you to to research the Davis-Bacon Act that was passed in uh, 1931. And that's where we get the whole thing about the prevailing wage, okay? Um, And there's (laughs) back and forth on that, right? As to why the Davis-Bacon Act was put into motion, right? Some argue that uh, it was put in motion uh, in order to respond to the number of uh, blacks who were moving from the South to the North to do work. And they were able to offer a price which came in lower. And so, hey, we put in this Davis-Bacon Act, we create a, a ceiling, a floor, excuse me, right? And so now um, if you've got someone coming in saying, hey, I'll do it for two bucks an hour, but the prevailing wage says, no, you got to pay people at five bucks, right? You kind of push people out. Right. And then there's another uh, competing notion that the reason the Davis-Bacon Act was put into motion uh, was to protect workers. So you got protection of workers versus, you know, complaints about cheap labor. Right. I do find it interesting that if it's about, you know, pricing out blacks, you know, many advocates uh, who are for the minimum wage today, I wonder if they have considered that. You know, the minimum wage is a part of systemic institutional racism, right? If you follow that line of thought that is going on today. And so why would you want to continue to insist on the perpetuation of a policy and a government intervention into um, two individuals into an agreement in terms of providing a service? All right. Why would you want something like that to perpetuate? Right. Something to consider. All right. Other proponents. All right. And this is from an article by J.B. Maverick, uh, November 2020. And quote, he says this, that the primary argument advanced in favor of raising the minimum wage is that higher earnings would improve the overall standard of living for minimum wage workers 
by providing them with a more appropriate income level to handle the cost of living increases, close quote. That's a good argument, right? Cost of living goes up. You know, you want to raise people's income, right? So to keep up with that cost of living increase, all right? A second argument for minimum wage increases, all right? Again, referencing Maverick. Please stay with me on this. I know it's kind of wonky, but it's good to lay out as much information as possible. Again, who's running through the back of my mind? John Stewart Mill. Consider all the information, right, about a, a particular topic, all right? So it's important for us to hear the arguments for and against the minimum wage. But going on, uh, Maverick again, and I quote, in the need for federal and state government expenditures on financial aid for poor and low income individuals, close quote. So what he's talking about is this, by increasing the minimum wage, the hope is, is that it reduces the need for individuals to pursue financial aid, all right, in relationship to persons who are poor and low income, all right? That by increasing the minimum wage, all right, that you would have less people seeking state and federal support, right? So whether that's food stamps, you know, some type of housing assistance, so on and so forth. Now, opponents of a minimum wage increase identify, identify the strong possibility of inflation and price increases, right? So basically, you don't get as much for your dollar as you once did, right? Inflation, okay? Um, so businesses will have an increase in operation costs to include labor costs. That's what I was talking about, all right? If you run a business, then you know payroll taxes and associated liabilities, they increase as well, all right? Also, opponents identify an increase in wages will necessitate business owners hiring persons whose skills and productivity will correspond to that particular wage. Thus, then can impact youth and low-skilled persons. Now, Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams talk about this a lot, right? So if I'm going to raise my wage to $15 an hour, two things got to happen, right? If somebody's already making that, you got to raise their wages, right? The existing employee. Now, if you got a spot open where you're going to hire somebody at $15 an hour, the question becomes, do you want to hire someone who has not developed the uh, social capital, employment capital, the skills to conduct that job, right? So they're not producing because they lack those skills. They're not producing at that $15 an hour. So you're going to go find somebody, right, who's got those skills. So what that does is it does impact teenagers who are looking for their first job. It does impact those individuals who don't have those skills developed yet. And so they are priced out. So this is kind of also a an objection in response to, if you will, the proponents who said that by increasing the minimum wage, you would decrease the number of people seeking to access state and federal aid. Well, if those persons don't have uh, the skills to meet the, the what I'm willing to pay, right? It is more to, it's an economic benefit to myself, to my business, but then also to the 
people that are already existing in there to hire somebody who I don't have to put as much training into because training is hours and hours is money, right? And productivity. So I'm going to go look for somebody who meets that level, right? I, I think if um, I was thinking earlier today as I was preparing for this, if I had a two different people come knock on my door, right? And, you know, spring is coming, you know, you're going to have people coming that's going to cut grass, right? And I see these two people and I know when I looked across the street from where I live, person A, he cut grass one way and it wasn't that good, right? And person B cut grass and it was excellent. And I'm going to pay 25 bucks, right? I'm going to pay 25 bucks to the person that did the excellent grass cutting. I got the evidence. I see his skills or her skills and, and what he or she produced in relationship to the job that they're that they're asking to be compensated for, right? So until person A improves his or her skills in grass cutting, right? I'm gonna pay the person B the $25. I'm not giving the $25 to the person who can't cut grass well. So that's that's the thing I was thinking about, all right? And then finally, in regards to cost of living. Cost of living, we have 50 states, right? So the cost of living in one state is radically different than the cost of living in another state, right? I've lived in a multitude of areas. Cost of living changes. So I went to the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics and the U.S. Department of Labor. And one of the things I looked at was the average wage uh, for persons who live in that state. Now, this is uh, the mean all right, so you add it all up and you divide by the total number, right? So, for example, Arkansas, all right, is twenty dollars and fifty-two cent. All right, twenty dollars and fifty-two cent is the average rate wage for all occupations in the United States. All right, excuse me, for all occupations within the state of Arkansas. Correct. That's a correction. All right. Again, this is from the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics as well as. Um, the U.S. Department of Labor. So the minimum wage for Arkansas is $11 an hour. Now, let's shoot up the Northeast along the coast, right? Let's go to Maryland, right? In Maryland, the average wage is, for all occupations in that state, $28.95. Their minimum wage is $11.75 an hour, okay? Now, let's compare that Let's look at Oklahoma. So let's shoot to the Midwest. All right. In Oklahoma, the average wage for all occupations, according to the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics and United States Department of Labor, $21.93 in Oklahoma. The minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. All right. And then finally, in California, the average wage for all occupations, it's $29.47. Their minimum wage is $13 an hour. So you see, based off of where you may live, right, just looking at the minimum wage is going to be different. And even if uh, it was a blanket across the board, $15 an hour, right, regardless of where you live, there would be some places in which that would still not be enough money. 
All right. And the reason I bring that up is, is there are a multitude of variables, cultural, because of that state, geographic, right? The existing industries that are there that are tied to one another and um, other industries where a state has to go out and get some support from those influence wages, right? Those influence the presence of particular occupations. All right. So those are the things that we also have to consider in regards to the minimum wage. All right. Uh, Rick gives us a comment. Minimum wage increases have always been a company with short and immediate intermediate private employment losses. Any offsets and overall employment have been uh, as a result of public hiring for a nonprofit. You would absorb the impacts of the wage increase, but be doubly exposed to the impact to overall employment, which would impact donations and the cost of materials and goods. One last challenge is the needs of your clients become more expensive. Yes, good point. Uh, and then the minimum wage does not change the value of the work provided. It only changes the numerical quantification of that effort, not its value. Market forces will drive for a, a relative equilibrium of intrinsic value between employee effort. Rick, that was a mouthful, bro. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yes, good thoughts. So, Hey, this is Dr. Philip Fletcher with Humanity Matters Weekly, and we are talking about, we have been talking about uh, the minimum wage and looking at, you know, both sides, for-profits, non-profits, you know, as this discussion is happening, you know, in Washington, D.C., and I'm sure it'll be happening in state legislatures across the United States. Um, there are pros and cons, right? And so I would hope that you would just go do your homework. Look at all sides, right? And then from there, you know, come up with a reasonable decision, which is a good segue to the liberty of ideas. So I want to again put up uh, our quote of the week by John Stuart Mill. And I quote, the only way in which a human being can make some approach to knowing the whole of a subject is by hearing what can be said about it by persons of every variety of opinion and studying all modes in which it can be looked by every character of mind, close quote. Now, there's been a lot going on, right? Dr. Seuss, political statements, things in the media, people digging up things that they did in high school, Right. People's views about particular things. And, you know, it's got him, you know, the 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 cool word right now is canceled or it's a cancel culture, so on and so forth. Um, and so um, that's what's going on. And so I've been doing my reading. Right. Been digging into some John Stuart Mill. Also been looking at uh, some thought on uh toleration and intoleration. And if you follow me, we've talked about Herbert uh, Marcusa uh, and seeing what he's had to say about that. Uh, just looking at history and how people have interacted with ideas and then specifically with ideas that they disagree with. And the question becomes, what do we do with ideas that we have disagreement with? What is the place of free speech in our society today? 
you know, in context, January 6th and that whole thing at the Capitol, I think that kind of amped people's minds up about that stuff. You had Twitter, you know, shut down President Donald Trump. I don't even think he has a social media presence anywhere, right? Um, You had other news, excuse me, social media outlets that are not allowed to function anymore, all right? So it's got me to ask myself, how certain are you about your beliefs? How certain are you? How certain are you? From John Stuart Mill, I think we are cheating ourselves the opportunity to give up an error for truth, right? That's one possibility. Or we're cheating ourselves of the opportunity to see the vitality of our idea and belief due to, and I quote, the collision with error, close quote. What do I mean on the former, right? So you have idea A, okay? Oh, you know, prime example. I testified down at the legislature uh, last month about the whole 1619 project, so on and so forth, right? So the existing information that's given out is from 1776 forward about American history, all right? You have the 1619 project come along with Nicole Hannah-Jones, so on and so forth. You got critical race theory, okay? So do we want to do we want to do away with the opportunity to engage with the ideas that are put forward by the 1619 Project, right? Because that could offer us the opportunity, all right, to exchange some errors that can be existing in the 1776 history for fuller truth, all right? At the same time, here's the second part of this. Engaging with the 1619 Project, its view of history, and the idea of the 1776 view of history, right? And engaging with the 1619 view of history, right? That can afford those who hold that view of history to see that there's errors in the things that they propose. Are we cheating ourselves by saying we don't want this taught? Are we cheating ourselves by saying, I don't want to see this on social media. I don't want to see this published in newspapers. If you still read a newspaper, I don't want to see this, you know, uh, played on YouTube or uh, shown in a movie theater, so on and so forth. All right. If we are pushing aside competing ideas We are cheating ourselves. We're removing ourselves from the beautiful opportunity of discovering more truth, right? But then also purging any error that is existing within our idea box, our brains, right? So there are ideas and beliefs, and I put this up on uh, Facebook this week. There are ideas and beliefs which persist in various mediums, all right? Yet the removal of those mediums do not extinguish the persistence of either, right? So again, last year was a whole talk about 
the removal of Confederate statues, right? And memorials, so on and so forth, right? Now, you can take down the statues. You can take down the flags, the Confederate flags, right? But taking those down, all right, does not end the persistence of those ideas as they relate to Confederate statues, um, Confederate flags, so on and so forth. Those ideas still persist. How do they persist? They persist in individual human beings, right? Ideas, whatever they, whatever idea that you hold, you carry them. So the only way to actually stop an idea, all right, it takes us down the road of, well, if we really want to end this idea, then we have to remove the people who perpetuate this idea. Now, uh, takes us down a dangerous road. It takes us down a dangerous road. So, one, if we don't want to engage with competing ideas, it takes away an opportunity of growth, either to see the vitality of the truth that we hold or to exchange an error for truth. But the second thing is this, is that ideas persist and ideas persist in people. You can shut me down from this whole platform, right? You can shut me down. None of this could ever broadcast again on Facebook or YouTube. But these ideas that I'm talking about, these things that I'm talking about today, they're still going to exist in me. So I can get up from this table, go downtown and just talk about them, right? The ideas persist. The only way that you can stop, you can reduce the ideas that I'm putting forward is to silence me forever. So there's never a truer statement, and I'm borrowing from Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, close quote, right? So ideas, they originate, they transform, they manifest in policies and national decisions and personal relationships. So we have to admit, if we seek to silence an idea, we must ask, why? We have to ask ourselves, why? Second, we have to ask ourselves, what is our motivation? So here's some questions for you. Do you want an idea silenced because you don't know how to respond? Second, maybe you're not, are you not certain? Let me start over. Are you not certain about the idea that you enunciate because it has not taken root in your life? In other words, are you just parroting what you heard a bobblehead say? I'm a bobblehead right now, right? Are you parroting what you've heard on a particular news source or what you read scroll, um, scroll across your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed or on your Snapchat? Are you just parroting that? And you haven't done the hard work, right? Have you looked at the different opinions who have spoken on that list, that particular issue? Third question, is the opposing idea no longer culturally relevant or has an associated negative outcome when actualized in the lives of everyday persons? 
Is the opposing idea no longer culturally relevant or has an associated negative outcome when actualized in the lives of everyday persons, right? We should want to realize there are multitude of ideas, all right, existing today, which in previous periods, think about this, there are a multitude of ideas today that existed in previous periods that <laughs> were under threat of censure, alienation, a.k.a. excommunication using religious language, shame, a.k.a. people being called heretics, or death. So there were people who enunciated ideas that we just take as, quote unquote, gospel today, that we talk about them freely. freely. But in a previous period, all right, people were censured. People, not the ideas, people were censured. People were alienated or in a religious setting, excommunicated. They were deemed with shame or in a religious language, made heretics, right? Or in some cases, death. The ultimate way to silence an idea. So what do I mean? Think about the Salem witch trials, right? And people who were discovered to practice witchcraft were put to death. But lo and behold today, right? We got TV shows about sorcery and witchcraft. We got a superhero that a lot of people cried about on Disney Plus, Wanda, the Scarlet Witch, right? J.K. Rowling wrote a whole series of novels about sorcery and witchcraft. And it's just celebrated and accepted today. But there was a period of time where if there was a person who stated that they believed that sort of thing, <laughs> death was the option, right? Here's another example, racial essentialism, right? So what did that take the form of? Well, race-based chattel slavery, okay, in the United States, okay? And particularly coming out of the South. It was applied in Germany with the Holocaust. But now racial essentialism is seen as a valid approach codified in what is termed anti-racism, right? So Ibrahim Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, so on and so forth, right? White privilege, white fragility, how to be anti-racist, right? So you've been talked about here at a local university, right? Lastly, the idea of God as a supreme reality. So there was a time like religion, views of God's dominated the culture, right? Europe, Middle East, Africa, so on and so forth, right? Specifically here in the United States, that was like, yes, it wasn't the state, it wasn't the king, everything, the king, presidents, governments answered to God. Now, that's not acceptable. What is the acceptable line of thought, the idea is the state is a supreme reality and religion, you know, keep that to yourself. So how shall these ideas, how can these ideas be confronted? If uncomfortable and life-changing opposing ideas are not allowed a seat at the table. Well, what do you mean, Philip? 
<laughs> this is what I mean, right? In issues regarding the state, every idea should be welcomed at the table. Every idea should be welcomed at the table. In terms of um, the current state of race in America, every idea needs to be welcomed to the table. And those ideas need to be engaged with. In terms of economics, like we just talked about the minimum wage, every idea needs to be welcomed to the table. And I'll, I'll say this, it is lazy thinking or, excuse me, it is lazy thinking and it also demonstrates a lack of willingness to engage with an idea if you use ad hominem attacks, right? So if you use ad hominem attacks and you call somebody lazy, excuse me, racist or misogynist or they don't care about the poor or um, you want the whole United States to fall, right? What you are demonstrating is not only do you not have confidence in the position that you are asserting, right? But you're also demonstrating a lack of willingness to hear from the other side, possibly out of fear that that idea at some level may be right. So engaging with these ideas for men and women in the United States of America to have the liberty to communicate their ideas. Now, what I'm not saying is you don't have the liberty to take an idea and force it on somebody or take somebody's life or property. That's not what I'm saying, right? If you want to sit at a table, I sat down with, a, I sat at the table. I've told people before, sat at the table with people who have white supremacist views, right? We can sit and have that discussion all day and all night, right? But it's going to be a discussion, right? And we're going to engage with the ideas. My view is a her view, right? I have views about the state, all right? I think, quiet as kept, I think the state does too much, okay? But I have to engage with someone who thinks the state is actually not doing enough, right? And let's learn from one another. That is the beauty of the country in which we live in. And so I would encourage people Resist the urge to silence competing ideas. Take the time, study, read up on an idea, okay, that opposes the idea that you hold. So like the minimum wage. So if you're all against the minimum wage and raising it, I would encourage you to go do some work on proponents of the minimum wage. See why they're making that argument. Is there any validity to their argument? All right. Educate and inform yourself so that when you are sitting and talking with somebody, right, both of you can, as Isaiah says, sit down and reason together. All right. If God can call people to sit down and reason with him, I think that human beings can sit down and reason 
with one another. All right. Also, remember is this. Is there are ideas that we hold now that weren't acceptable back in the day? Okay. Those are things that we got to consider. Like, let's freedom of speech was an idea that was not acceptable back in the day. Right. If you go back in history. Right. You could just say whatever you wanted to say. So let's work to avoid returning to that time of life where people were censured, where people were shamed, alienated. All right. Let us not end up in a situation where it may cost a person or a group their life. All right. So, hey, thank you all for uh, joining me today on the Humanity Matters Weekly. This will be available. if You want to go back and re- read or watch the whole episode on YouTube, as well as it'll be available on the Humanity Matters podcast. Reminder, next uh, Sunday at 5 p.m., I will be sitting down with Spike Cohen. Uh, he was a 2020 Libertarian vice presidential candidate for the United States of America. We'll be talking about libertarianism and lessons learned from running for office. And then the following Sunday at 5 p.m., we'll have a one-on-one with Dr. Peg Falls Corbett. Uh, she is on faculty at Hendricks College. And we'll be discussion, discussing punishment, criminal justice, the death penalty. Um, it's going to be very enlightening. As always, remember, uh, connect with me on my website, philipfletcher.org. Subscribe over to the YouTube channel. I would appreciate it very much. You're on YouTube anyway. Just go find me. Subscribe. I would appreciate it very much. Humanity Matters Podcast. Hey, subscribe there as well. Whether you're on Anchor, uh, you get your podcast content off of Apple, you know, Android device, Spotify, whatever. I would appreciate it very much. Give me a review. You want to be a sponsor? pfletcher73 at gmail.com. If I'm giving you any type of value, uh, be a sponsor. I would love to run an ad, show your show the support. And if you want to participate in the mailbag, uh, Humanity Matters Podcast at gmail.com. Humanity Matters Podcast at gmail.com. And as always, I got to give a shout out to my nonprofits, coho58.org, Hope Village, and Replicate. Go to coho58.org, hopevillagecoho.org. We're about to do a big thing um, this spring with Hope Village. We're very excited about it. Uh, A lot of uh, long, hard work is going to be coming to fruition. And so if you would like to support that effort, let's go to hopevillagecoho.org. Make a donation. Make a donation to Coho. We continue to provoke hope in people. Um, I appreciate y'all very much. And as always, remember to be love, to be kind, to be generous. If we remember to live in hope, we can do the impossible. Y'all take care. God bless. Thank you for joining us of the Humanity Matters podcast. For more information, visit our website, philipfletcher.org. Like us on YouTube. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Remember to be loved, be kind, be generous. If we remember to live in hope, we can do the impossible.